a story about the body. The young composer, working that summer at an artist's colony, had watched her for a week. She was Japanese, a painter, almost 60, and he thought he was in love with her. He loved her work, and her work was like the way she moved her body, used her hands, looked at him directly when she mused, and considered answers to his questions. One night, walking back from a concert, they came to her door and she turned to him and said, I think you would like to have me. I would like that too, but I must tell you that I have had a double mastectomy. And when he didn't understand, I've lost both my breasts. The radiance that he had carried around in his belly and chest cavity, like music, withered quickly and he made himself look at her when he said, I'm sorry, I don't think I could. He walked back to his own cabin through the pines, and in the morning he found a small blue bowl on the porch outside his door. It looked to be full of rose petals, but he found when he picked it up that the rose petals were on top, the rest of the bowl, she must have swept the corners of her studio, was full of dead bees. That's a famous poem by the poet Robert Hass, and probably you know that, but if you don't, don't worry, you can take a look at it on our Canvas site. If you read the poem, or if you listen to it closely, you can hear just how complex the syntax of this piece is. The whole paragraph, it's a prose poem, is seven sentences, but each sentence gets increasingly Byzantine, more clauses, whole sentences of dialogue packed into a single line. Hi, this is the newest edition of the Coronavirus Lectures. This time we're going to be talking about syntax and the ways that syntax influences voice, character, and even our ideas of what is truthful or accurate. Going back to a story about the body for a moment, if you really listen to this and look at this closely, you'll notice that Hass is employing what we call hypotaxis. That's a literary device that relies on a pileup of subordinating clauses. Hypotaxis is complex syntax that suggests hierarchies of information. This action is more important than that action. Here's another example of hypotaxis. This morning, while walking my dog, I went to the store to buy bread, milk, cheese, which my husband, who had eaten all these things yesterday by himself, wanted. You can see from this sentence that the main point is that I want to get some things from the store for my husband. The secondary information is that I did this while walking my dog and that my husband wanted these things because he's a greedy pig. Now, I could rewrite the sentence this way. This morning, I walked my dog and then I went to the store. I bought bread and milk and cheese for my husband. He ate everything yesterday by himself and wanted them again today. This rewritten version of the first sentence is an example of parataxis, a sentence that combines actions through the use of conjunctions like and but. Parataxis favors short, simple sentences with the use of coordinating but not subordinating conjunctions. Parataxis literally means placing side by side, and sometimes we see it in passages that put two sentences together that have no clear logical relationship, like this. I went to the store. My mother flew into town yesterday. Hypotaxis suggests hierarchies of meaning and relationship, but parataxis suggests equivalence. A story about the body uses both types of literary techniques. 
We all, in fact, move between hypotaxis and parataxis ourselves, but many times passages are predominantly marked by the use of one device over another. The question is why, and what benefit do we get from it? In Hass's case, using hypotaxis reveals the internal character and voice of the poem's main character, the young musician. Here, the sentences build and unfurl much like a piece of music might, or the musician's own desire for the painter. As the musician gets closer to the object of his desire, the painter, the syntax becomes increasingly convoluted until we get this masterpiece sentence. One night, walking back from a concert, they came to her door and she turned to him and said, I think you would like to have me. I would like that too, but I must tell you that I've had a double mastectomy. And when he didn't understand, I've lost both my breasts. This one sentence carries within it three sentences of dialogue. After the painter tells him about her mastectomy, the musician's disappointment is registered again in Hass's syntax, which winds down and becomes much more direct. Then the poem's syntax ramps up again in that startling last two sentences. He walked back to his own cabin through the pines, and in the morning he found a small blue bowl on the porch outside his door. It looked to be full of rose petals, but he found when he picked it up that the rose petals were on top, the rest of the bowl, she must have swept the corners of her studio, was full of dead bees. Rewrite that last sentence so that the semicolon and the parenthetical disappears, and it might sound like this. It looked to be full of rose petals, but he found when he picked it up that the rose petals were on top. The rest of the bowl was full of dead bees she'd swept up from her studio. What a crappy ending. It's that parenthetical addition, the she must have swept the corners of her studio, that creates both anticipation and psychological drama. We see both how deliberate and artful her response was to a sexual rejection, and we also feel the same shock of surprise on ending with that image of dead bees. Hass's poem is about two artists negotiating attraction and rejection. His poem is also a piece of art. It is, after all, a story about the body. So there are three kinds of art at play in the piece. Music, here approximated through Hass's syntax. Visual art, here in the bowl of petals and bees. And poetry, here again, in Hass's narrative. Hass's syntactic choices have to be deliberate in order to respect each type of art at play and the various surprises that they offer. Finally, Hass's syntax has to reveal some part of the character's own psychology. If I rewrote the poem in language I might use in the street or for this podcast, I would be telling you a series of events. I probably wouldn't be able to paint you as compelling a character portrait as Hass has. My point is that syntax is one of the major ways we create both suspense and character in our writing. And since nonfiction often asks us to write not just about ourselves, but other people, we have to consider how we render people in the language and literary devices that we use. With that in mind, I want to talk about another poem called How To by Anders Carlson Wee. If you got HIV, say AIDS. If you a girl, say you're pregnant. Nobody gonna lower themselves to listen for the kick. People passing fast, splay your legs, cock a knee, funny. It's the littlest shames they're likely to comprehend. Don't say homeless, they know you is. 
What they don't know is what opens a wallet, what stops them from counting what they drop. If you're young, say younger. Old, say older. If you're crippled, don't flaunt it. Let them think they're good enough Christians to notice. Don't say you pray, say you sin. It's about who they believe they is. You hardly even there. How To attracted a lot of attention online after some readers called the poem culturally appropriative, in part because they knew that Carlson Wee isn't homeless, but educated, white, and middle class. But it's also in part because of the poem's use of maybe racial or perhaps just regional dialect. Is the speaker African-American? From the South? Poor? A woman? A man? A combination of these identities? It's not exactly clear to me, even as admirers of the poem defended the dialect, arguing that it exactly duplicated the dialectical rules of Appalachian English. Now, I'm not an expert on this dialect, so the controversy made me wonder whether it was possible that a speaker's voice can be both accurate and inauthentic sounding at the same time, and how much readerly fantasies of how people should sound play into a reception of what we call a character's voice. Now, if I rewrite Carlson Wee's poem in standardized English, I see that the meaning of the poem itself just doesn't change. To survive in the streets, the homeless person reinvents himself to activate each passerby's particular sense of empathy and guilt. That's a message I find believable as a reader. If this poem were spoken by an African-American, however, I might imagine some crucial bit of information was still missing, which is that, for some passersby, there is no performance that can activate empathy because it won't ever see or respond to black poverty. If it's true that people give based on who they believe they is, as Carlson Wee writes, then certain white or non-black passersby will only give money to whites. Or maybe they'll offer more money to non-white homeless people so as not to appear racist. I recognize how particular identities might affect homelessness. Being a woman would affect one's experience of being homeless, being disabled, being a vet, being mentally ill, being non-white. All these identities would profoundly shape how one survived on the streets. But the poem suggests all identity positions might be leveled through performance to appeal to a passersby desire to see herself or her idea of homelessness reflected in the speaker. And yet the practical experience of being embodied means that certain performances are finally either limited or impossible to act out by the fact of our bodies. So if the poem's meaning suggests that identity is ultimately a filigree, a mask that can be put on and taken off at will, weirdly the dialect insists upon the exact opposite message, which is that behind the mask lies a highly specific identity. The dialect may even imply a historical or geographic reason for the speaker's homelessness. How to then attempts to impart a general message about a wide variety of identity positions experiencing homelessness, but it also tries to act as a dramatic monologue, one spoken by someone who, through his or her dialectical tics, represents a larger community and sweep of history. All of which means that the poem requires me to envision who the speaker is, not just to see through his or her perspective. If I can't easily name or even physically imagine the narrator, the poem becomes the performance of a didactic message, not a fully fleshed character study. I think this is why Carlson Wee's use of dialect, regardless of its syntactic accuracy, sounded to readers as performative not merely a mark of identity difference from the author himself, but potentially of identity otherness. In some sense, the poem's use of dialect mimics the speaker's own message. It performs my idea of the person who is homeless versus trying to carve out an identity specific to a person. But 
While I question the use of dialect and how-to, I wouldn't actually argue against using dialect or black English in another work, like one of your essays. I certainly wouldn't argue against considering the connection between speech and character in any piece of writing that wants to investigate social performance. The playwright and actress Anna Devere Smith, for example, who's famous for her documentary-style plays in which she performs a variety of ethnically diverse characters, says that it's voice itself that is a profound physical reality. How we speak is not a cultural tick, Devere Smith argues, but something that involves all our bodily knowledge. Speech patterns are crucial to signaling ethnic affiliation and background. Our identities are shaped in and by language, and so it makes sense to have people sound like the communities from which they come. When we argue about what does or does not constitute accuracy with regard to dialect and speech, I actually wonder if one of the difficulties about accuracy and our ideas about accuracy is that sometimes it runs distinctly parallel or even counter to truth. And when it comes to dialect, exact duplication can have the exact opposite effect of the one you intend as a writer, which is to make your characters sound like cartoons. Truth, which is the writer's aim, can at times differ from factual accuracy. But part of how we recognize something as true is that it has a strong relationship with accuracy. We approximate how people speak in order to elevate what we want the reader to focus on, how they behave and think and feel. Accuracy, in terms of speech and dialect, focuses on bodily rhythm, what you might call the twang and rasp of speech. These things allow me to feel the physical complexity of a person's speech patterns, even while they may also miss the truth of the person's actual voice, that internal monologue or perhaps dialogue that's always running through our heads. Voice differs from speech by the fact it is comprised and composed of a ceaseless stream of impressions formed through memory, sense, and emotion, all of which trigger more memories and emotions as we internally narrate the story of our lives. This inner voice may be outside of language, or at least outside any conventional syntax you and I have been taught. And because our inner voices move so associatively, representing them on the page is, frankly, impossible. As a writer, I depict a character's inner voice through outline, by focusing not just on how she says a thing, but on what she says, and the order in which she says it. In that sense, my representation of speech sacrifices exactitude to locate a more radical truth. As I've said before, writing manipulates us all the time, and writing manipulates details to create worlds that readers choose to see as believable because they reflect what readers already know or assume to know about a person or event. One of my friends, Jennifer Siner, for example, wrote a work of lyric nonfiction reimagining the life of George O'Keefe entitled Letters Like the Day on Reading George O'Keefe. In this book, she includes a short scene of George O'Keefe snorkeling. Did George O'Keefe ever go snorkeling? Jennifer has no idea. The scene was written to give the literary character O'Keefe a moment to visualize the underwater world in shapes and light and color that will recall the way O'Keefe later paints the New Mexican landscape. It's a completely invented scene, but it feels organic because of what we know about O'Keefe's paintings. In my own personal essays, I've changed the order in which certain events happen for narrative clarity, and because I don't have perfect recollection of everything that's been said to me since I was five years old, I'll admit it, I occasionally create dialogue that replicates what a person I know very well could have said. But these manipulations 
are really small examples of fakery that risk very little damage. My historical reading of Georgia O'Keeffe does not depend on knowing whether or not she ever went snorkeling. Likewise, no one in or outside my family cares about whether my great aunt Ruby, say, hated orange sherbet. But my family does know how religious Ruby was, and so it would be offensive to them, not just inaccurate, for me to suddenly make her burst into a sacrilegious screed. I've said before that creative nonfiction and essays make no claims to be journalism, which must depend on accuracy and fact to be both believable and truthful. But when it comes to creatively imagining the lives of people unlike us, as I've said before, certain inventions take on larger ethical resonances. These ethical resonances are something that shape the syntax of James Agee and Walker Evans's book, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. Maybe you've experienced one of the things that makes that book hard to read for some people, A.G.'s sentence structures. A.G.'s sentences are hypotactic, hyperbolic, hyper-self-aware, hyper-ventilating, basically hyper-everything. The question is why, especially considering that the original impetus for this book was a commission by Fortune magazine for A.G. to profile a tenant farming family trying to survive the Great Depression. Now, magazine writing tends to be pretty direct syntactically, so if even part of this is what A.G. turned in late, notoriously, to his editors, you can see why Fortune killed the article. But I think that commission, along with Evans' photographs, provide the reason for A.G.'s particular and overwhelming syntax. I read A.G.'s syntax as a form of guilt. Guilt for voyeuristically writing about spying on, actually, this family of sharecroppers, guilt for the class difference between himself and his subjects, guilt for being an artist in a medium that, compared to photography, falls short of objectively depicting reality. This is something A.G. addresses in the book, the shortcomings of the word in comparison with the material reality the Goodgers and the Ricketts face. This book, as A.G. says early on, shouldn't be composed of words at all, but sticks and mud, cloth, hair, and blood. In that, Evans' photos are a formal foil for A.G., one that A.G.'s text has to work consciously and not against. If a photo is a direct representation of objective reality, or at least we, if we assume a photo is a representation of reality, how does language approximate it? How can a sentence encapsulate the consciousness, the physical circumstances, and the feelings of both writer and subject in the most truthful ways possible? Thus, A.G.'s capacious and poetic sentences, which try to take everything and everyone in. The book's modernist stream-of-consciousness style gestures towards what I was talking about earlier, the attempt to capture voice, that ceaseless stream of impressions formed through memory, sense, and emotion. If the photo undeniably captures what the Gudgers and Ricketts look like, what their living conditions are, A.G.'s syntax can capture their voices in the act of living as they are. What voice, character, and accuracy all share is the desire to represent fairly and truthfully the voices and lives of other people on the page. Unless you only ever write about yourself, you will eventually run into these problems. Take heart, they're shared by all writers. And if you are curious, respectful, and willing to take editorial advice, perhaps a lot of your problems can be mitigated. I want to end on some words by Percy by Shelley in his A Defense of Poetry. He wrote that poetry is the art of imagining that which we know. In essence, writers lie or imagine at times to get the larger story right. 
And these small manipulations are, ironically, part of what makes fictional or non-fictional narratives feel truthful to readers, even as they frustrate our notions of accuracy. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Coronavirus Lectures. Please read all the assigned essays or book chapters for this week and complete whatever's due whenever it is due. Thank you.